So anyway, let's preach the word. Boom, you can start recording now. Um, I want to just refer you back to the books, just for those who are, uh, want to know the books that I've been using for this series. It's the A.W. Tozer books, The Attributes of God, Volume 1 tonight, and Volume 2 is obviously the other book. Um, Psalm 139, uh, if you want to turn to this, I want to read four verses, four very familiar verses from Psalm 139, and we're talking about the imminence of God tonight. The imminence of God means that God penetrates all things, and uh, there's going to be a real challenge tonight whenever I was preparing this today. Um, sometimes whenever I look at messages like this, I really struggle with the idea of being worthy enough to teach it. But you know what? I cannot shy away from what I believe God has given me. And so there will be a challenge tonight. I'm just going to say that up front. And there'll be an opportunity for people to uh, stand and, and, and uh, I'll pray for you guys at the end. But just uh, as we go through this, um, let's just challenge ourselves and, and see the message for what the message of God is tonight. So Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10 uh, says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shul, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now, obviously, these four verses are about the omnipresence of God in that God is everywhere at all times. Now, sometimes that's hard to get our heads around, um, but it's the idea that God doesn't have to travel to be somewhere. And just think about that for a second. God is as close to me right now as he's as close to anybody within the building right now, but he's also as close to my loved ones back home, your loved ones, wherever they're at. It's not the idea that God's flying between us. It, God is actually everywhere at every moment in time, and, and that is the reality of omnipresence. But also, uh, and you know what that means, but God is also imminent. And what that means is that God actually penetrates everything as well. So it's not actually that God is everywhere, but God actually penetrates us and everything in this world all at the same time. So the good way to illustrate that is a bucket in the ocean. So if you, bucket, is that, is that a word over here? Yeah, bucket, just wondering. Um, a bucket in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that is full of water and the bucket is also in the ocean. And it's the idea, if you think of the bucket as the universe and the water as God, now it's maybe a poor example, but the water is in the bucket. God is within all things, but then God also contains the universe, which is the bucket. Now, whenever you think about the size of the universe, I want to try to describe to you just for a little second here the vastness of God. And whenever I was looking at these numbers, whenever I first prepared this, I, it just blew me away. And I love the whole idea. Numbers, I like numbers. It's just something that helps me to learn something as if I can think and see, almost understand the reality of something. But um, maybe some of you know, maybe you don't, the, the size of the observable universe. In other words, the, the universe, the part of the universe that they know that's already there. Okay, now it's, it's actually probably 90% at least bigger than that. But the, the distance across the, the universe that the scientist knows that's already there is 93 billion light years across. Now, you'll understand that a light year is how far light travels in one year. And that distance is 5.8 trillion miles. Okay, so if you take 93 billion times it by 5.8 billion, and you actually get 540 with 21 zeros after it, miles across. So I'm going to try and say that number. 540 billion trillion miles across. That is what the observable universe is, it is out there. Anybody impressed? <laughs> and we're this little speck somewhere in the middle of that. And whenever you think about what God actually put as a backdrop to the earth, it wasn't just something that goes be to our galaxy or beyond or anything like that. It is this vastness, and yet God actually holds that in the palm of his hand. That's the size of the God that you and I serve. 
And those numbers are just impossible to get your head around, aren't they? And yet, that is the God that lives also inside of us in His imminence. So God not only encapsulates all of those vast numbers that I've just described to you, but He also lives within me, within you, and within everyone, because God penetrates all things. Believe it or not, if you're not a believer, God also penetrates and is within you, because God in His omnipresence and His, penet- his, his eminence is actually everywhere, all at the same time. And so, here's the challenge starting. So, in terms of eminence then, when we talk about people being distant from God, We're not talking about a spatial thing because it's impossible to be distant from God. Do you accept what I'm saying, the premise of what I'm saying? We cannot be distant from God. That's an impossibility. So if we feel that we're distant from God, that's actually what Tozer calls a moral dissimilarity. And we're going to be talking tonight about a moral dissimilarity. And don't worry, we're going to explain what that means and give everybody an opportunity to potentially respond to a prayer at the end. And so reconciliation to God then. So whenever, if you're a believer, you've came to God or not, if you have not yet came to God, the idea of reconciliation to God is secured through what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we talked about this this morning and what exactly that means to become a Christian at the cross of Jesus Christ. But just as an aside here, there's three things that happened at the cross. There was three things. First thing was the atonement. It's a word that you've all heard of. The atonement of Jesus Christ was whereby Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. At Old Testament times, you remember that an animal had to be sacrificed in order for the sins of whoever it was being sacrificed for, for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus became that atoning sacrifice once and for all. Jesus became the atonement, the sacrificial lamb who died on the cross. And by doing so, the second thing that happened at the cross was the justification happened, or the process of justification is there so that if you and I respond correctly to the atonement of Jesus Christ, then the justification means it is just as if I had never sinned. That is the process of justification. And then the bit at the end is what's known theologically as regeneration. You would probably know it better as the word saved. And so that's whenever we can actually come to the cross, Jesus Christ has paid the price and the atoning sacrifice that he has made. He has provided that justification from our sins. And if we believe that Jesus Christ did that for us, then we can be regenerated as a result of that and saved. That's the theological, in a nutshell, context of what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. And whenever that happens, God declares you righteous, or I righteous, whoever it is that is coming to that process, and God saves us by imparting to us his nature, right? Okay? And so there's a verse, 2 Corinthians 5, and Paul's talking to the church here in Corinth, and he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. You all know this verse. So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, if someone has came to Christ, somebody has made a profession for Christ, and somehow the old hasn't passed away, the new hasn't come, I actually think you have to go back to the previous sentence whereby you have to ask the question, maybe you're not a new creation at all. And I don't want to get into the doctrine of grace here tonight. That's not what we're talking about. But I absolutely believe with all my heart there are many people who make decisions for Jesus, but it's never anything more than a decision. I remember over the years, my dad was a pastor for many, many, many years. And my dad was always very careful how he used phrases when it came to this kind of thing. And he would always have said that so many people in his church service made decisions for Christ because he felt that it wasn't his place to say that somebody had been saved or regenerated. Now, you may be here today, and maybe genuinely, maybe you've just made some sort of a decision. Maybe you've been in an environment where it was just appropriate to make a decision, but what actually happened in your life? Are you, like Paul says here, are you in Christ, and are you a new creation? Because if you're a new creation, guess what? The old should be starting to pass away. That's the process of sanctification then. Okay, so the old stuff, the flesh should start to drop off a little bit. And more and more and more as we get older and the new should come. And guess what? Again, as we said this morning, and it's just to remind you that that can only be done this side of eternity. It's not the idea that whenever we arrive up there in heaven or we arrive somewhere, 
standing before God and we say, look, I meant to get saved. It just doesn't work like that. If you do not get saved before you leave this planet, uh, either when God returns or you lose your life, unfortunately, or you die in, in old age, you can't change your mind at that point. And so therefore, this is something that has to be done now. But the point that I'm making here, because the challenge tonight is to Christians, the challenge tonight is those who have already made this decision for God, the newest Christian or the oldest Christian in this room tonight should have a degree of comparability with God. You're not going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. We're not into the teaching. I'm certainly not into the teaching of sinless perfection. Okay, and I know that sinless perfection is maybe something that you've heard about before. It's certainly not something that I believe in. I believe that we can strive for holiness. I could believe that we can get better and better and better, but we're never, ever going to be perfect. Otherwise, the Lord's Prayer was a pointless prayer. That's just my view on it. I'm saying that because there's people who believe that, just in case there is somebody in the room that believes it. I'm happy to discuss it with you afterwards, by the way. Um, But there should absolutely be a sense of comparability with us and God if we give our lives to Christ. Can we all accept that based on what Paul said in his verse? And so that, if it's the case, then allows you and I to have communion with God. So if we're talking here about believers then, the question is, and here's the challenge, why do you feel God at a distance sometimes based on the fact that I've told you that it's an impossibility to be actually distant from God? So why do you feel God at a distance. You know, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I would imagine that there are many people in the room tonight at certain times in your life, maybe even tonight, and you feel, and again, I'm going to explain this, but you, the way you feel right now is that you feel that you're distant from God. You may be a believer, you may once made a decision for God, but you feel distant from God right now. I'm going to tell you, and this is the challenge, I keep going back to it, and I'm going to hammer this tonight, is that it's not distance but actually it's a dissimilarity in your nature, your nature and God's, and that you're not alike. The old has not passed away. The new has not come to the degree that it should come. You may be saved, you may be regenerated, and you may call God your father, but you're not alike. And so therefore, God seems remote to you. And so if you pray for God to come near, and that's how we pray, isn't it? Very often, a lot of our songs are like this. So if you pray for God to come near, we can use that phrase if you want, but it's not a spatial thing that you're actually talking about. You may think it's a spatial thing. You may think it's some kind of a distance thing, but actually, whenever, because of the imminence of God and the fact that God penetrates our very being and He is closer to us, even than our own heartbeat and our breathing, rather you're praying to God for a a similarity thing. And that's actually what you're praying. You're praying to be more like Christ. And you may not realize it, and somehow you might think in your mind that God has moved. Or you may be brave enough to suggest that you have moved. But again, I need to suggest to you that you hear this point that it's not a distance thing. It is somehow a a, a cold thing on your part. It's a carnal thing. It's a flesh thing. And there is that moral dissimilarity between you and God. Let me explain this by a verse, Genesis 28, 16. And we'll be going to 28, 17 tomorrow. But just for tonight, we're looking at 28, 16. And the context here is Jacob, after he has, uh, 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 he bluffed his dad into blessing him, if you remember, with the help of his mother. Deceived, that's the word I was looking for, couldn't find it, that's what Jacob actually means, deceiver. And so he deceived his father with the help of his mother to get the blessing that his older brother should have got. You all know the story. He ran off for his life. Now remember, this guy became the father of the nation after he wrestled with God, but this was an earlier part of his life whenever he was absolutely carnal, whenever he was a deceiver, whenever he wasn't actually a very nice person. But yet he became Israel and the father of the nation. But it's interesting here in Genesis 28, 16, because he ran off from that situation. He ended up sleeping rough. He ended up having a vision or a dream. If you remember, the ladder came down from heaven and the angels ascended and descended on the ladder. And Jacob woke, and here's what Jacob said. He says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And so Jacob 
realized that God was there, but he didn't actually realize that God was there. So the idea was that he felt distant, but actually whenever you look at his life, it's as clear as the nose in your face that it was actually a moral dissimilarity that he had because he had just deceived his very brother out of the birthright, or the, sorry, the blessing that he should have had, and he deceived his brother previous to that, to, to the birthright, and he was a crook. But yet this guy was going to be the father of the nation. Does it surprise you in the church that there are some crooks? Or do we think the church is full of perfect people? No. I'm not, look again, I'm not above this kind of conversation. I promise you that. That's why I don't feel like I'm worthy of teaching this kind of subject. But I'm telling you, the church is full of carnal Christians. And see if... See if any one of you have just thought of somebody else right there now. Then you need to think about yourself by the fact that you've just thought of somebody else. Does that make sense? I'm sorry for saying it, but I'm telling you that's the truth because the minute we thought of someone else just there now, that was a self-righteous thought. So when you pray for the presence of God, you're actually praying for the manifestation of the presence of God. The Old Testament talks about the Shekinah glory of God. And the glory of God means the heaviness or the weight of God, a tangible thing that we can understand and feel. Now, I'm not, I, I mentioned it last night, I mentioned it again, because have you heard of the phrase, the dark night of the soul? I'm sure many people have. I don't even know who coined that phrase. I must ask my encyclopedic friend Pat after the service, because that's the kind of thing that he knows. And if you don't, Pat, there's your homework for tomorrow morning. Who was it said, talked about the dark night of the soul? But basically what it meant was that sometimes we can feel that we're on our own. Sometimes we can feel, have you ever felt like you've prayed and the, the prayers bounce off the ceiling sometimes, in a metaphoric sense? But as I was saying to you last night, at some point in your life, you'll have to get to that stage where you actually have such a peace and a comfort with God that you know that even if things go quiet, that God's there. And we should know that he's there. And if you've been at that point in your life or you're at that point in your life right now where you're not sure if God's there. And I would imagine in a group this size, there are people sitting listening to me right now and you're not sure if God is there. And if you're not sure that God is there, then you need to actually do something about that because there's a moral dissimilarity in the sense if that's how you feel, then you're not sensing that God is with you, then there's a moral dissimilarity. Strong words, but true. So rather than praying to be near God, actually it's more a fact that you need to pray to be more like God. The prayer should be about Christ-likeness or what Tozer calls a moral similarity. So let's look at three aspects of Christ-likeness um, uh, before we get through this tonight. And so the first aspect of Christ-likeness that I want to look at is the holiness of Christ. Okay, and we know that God is holy because the Old Testament and the New Testament both state that be holy as I am holy and that is God speaking. Jesus is holy and that's what we're talking about here and of course we have the Holy Spirit. Now think, think how stained, spotted and carnal the average Christian is. I don't want you to think that I'm up here having a go at you. I promise you I'm not I'm not in that jovial mood tonight because this is such a serious subject. I need you to hear my heart when I speak tonight. Think how stained, spotted, and carnal the average Christian is. And heaven forbid if that is any of us here tonight because I do believe that there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. And I hope to goodness that nobody in here disagrees with that. Otherwise, half of what the New Testament has been written about is a pointless exercise. Because guess what? Yes, we can be carnal. Yes, we can be flesh-like. But hopefully we can recognize that that is where we are. And the fact that maybe you're here at this conference, other than meeting up with friends, and that's good as well, is that maybe you just recognize that you need something from God. Now, I do struggle as well with the conference mentality. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a conference speaker. I sp I've spoke here before, and that's the kind of thing that I do back home. But what I'm saying is that if you wait for your annual fix up here, nothing's ever going to change either, by the way. It's not. And I see it back home whenever people at annual conferences have a really good week. 
what happens for the next 51 weeks of the year? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being here. This is fantastic. I love being up here. I love sharing and having fellowship with the rest of you guys. I love the worship. I love the, the, the teaching when I'm not teaching. I love to listen to that kind of thing. But seriously, guys, we live for God 365. Yeah? And it's not about one week in the year. It's not about one day in the week either. Yeah, it really isn't. It has to be an existence. It has to be a permanent thing. How long is it? Again, don't answer these questions out loud. Don't show your hands. I just want you to think about what it is that I'm saying. How long is it since you last repented? Now, I know that we talked about this this morning, that whenever we come to Christ at the cross, that our condition of sin is justified. The theological aspect of actually the cross and what's happening at the cross as a result of the atonement. But each and every day, you and I can sin, absolutely, because why would Jesus teach us to confess our sins on a daily basis if we weren't capable of sin. Let's go into the Old Testament without naming all of the people there, but you know how sinful many of them were, but thank God they all managed to get through and they all managed to actually serve God as best as they could because like, even like David, who was an adulterous murderer, was referred to in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart. Come on, if, if any one of us in here has made a mistake, let's put a hand up because I would expect everybody to have a hand up. Let's just get over it. Yeah? And let's not have pity parties as to how bad we've been at some point in our lives. But actually, let's just draw a line under and get on with it. I remember meeting a guy, and I'm off my notes now. I don't apologize for that. I remember meeting a guy who really, really struggled with something in his life. And just in case he's listening to this, I'm not even going to say what it was that he struggled with. But the point that I'm making is he could not forgive himself. And as a result, he basically kept himself at bay. And I, uh, not, I'm not saying he was car carnal, but I'm saying is that he was ineffectual in the church because he, he couldn't actually forgive himself. And because whenever we come to God, we come to Christ, we ask for forgiveness for our sins. It says clearly in the Bible that God does not remember our sins against us anymore. And so we need to actually get up each and every day. Yes, we need to repent of our sins. We need to be serious about it. But if you mess up again tomorrow, you do the same thing tomorrow. Because the devil's going to try and convince you that if somehow you've got some sort of a, let's, like, I, I, sin is sin. But in your mind, if something really bad has happened, and Wes was talking about this yesterday morning, and whenever you think about this, there's stuff that goes on in your lives that somehow the devil has convinced you that you need to sit in the corner for the rest of your days. Come on. But guess what? There are many people who are listening to that kind of thing. But also, there are many people that it suits to listen to that kind of thing. Forgive me for saying that. There's people who are quite content to sit in the corner. They're quite content to wear their I have Jesus t-shirt. They're quite, and that's no offense to you, Johnny Bustos, because I know that is not you whatsoever. but they're quite happy to wear the badge, but don't bother me, yeah? They're quite happy to say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, but I'm not interested in helping you out. It's interesting whenever Jesus met 500 people after his resurrection, did you know that he met 500 people at the one time? It tells us that in the book of Acts, many were in the upper room, 120. The usual 80-20 rule in your churches, Come on, let's forget about the 80-20. Are we going to be serious about serving God? How long is it since you last repented? How long is it since you last went through the Lord's Prayer and decided to shake off some of the nonsense that's going on in each of our lives? And yes, you might mess up, but let's get before God and let's, let's decide to give it back to Him and say, God, forgive me. I know that you have forgiven the condition of sin in my life because I am saved and I am going to heaven. But Lord, each and every day, I need to come before you and confess I need to confess that gossiping tongue of mine. I need to confess that critical spirit of mine. I need to confess that lustful eye of mine. I need to confess whatever it is, that, that, uh, that belligerence, that, that, uh, that uh, I don't know, our feeling that we need to lie our way out of everything, our own truths, our, our lifting stuff that it doesn't belong to us. Like I could go on and on and on here, but I don't want to become religious about it. But the fact is we need to confess what it is that we've done before God, and we need to get up tomorrow morning and say, we're actually going to try our best not to do that today. 
And so that we can actually get to that place where we don't feel distant any longer because it's actually more like us being like Christ. Years pass. Is it years? Is it years since you confessed your sin? Because if it is, you're still. And then you get to church. When you go, you pray, come Lord Jesus. You sing, God, come near to me. And I'm not being facetious here, but I'm telling you right now, you can sing that song three times, four times, five times on a Sunday, but if you're not living the life throughout the year, it's, it's something different than a distance thing. Do you understand the point? Guess what? In his eminence, as I've already said, God is already here. You might say, Lord, show yourself, but God's not going to show himself in a manifest way to an unholy Christian. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I come from a Pentecostal background. I don't shy away from those things, but I have to be honest with you that I get so frustrated sometimes whenever people come to church on a Sunday for their microwave 10 seconds. And if there's Pentecostals in the room, I don't apologize because that's what I've been my entire life. I don't have a problem with Pentecostalism. I really do not. I love to see the greater gifts, but I think the thing that frustrates me most is when people somehow think that they have to go through some sort of a, an experience whereby they get a quick hit on a Sunday and somehow that's going to carry them through their carnality for the rest of the week. Forgive me for saying it, but I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I am absolutely for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I've studied revival and absolutely there should be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But guess what happens whenever revival starts? Whenever that is that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, guess what happens? What's the first thing that happens? That Christians repent. And if you know your history and if you've read the history of revival across this world, you will recognize clearly that that's where it starts. And if the Holy Spirit was to pour himself out here tonight in a manifest way, guess what? We probably would be all in our faces, but we would all be in faces in absolute reverence before God. And that's exactly how I see the Bible. And whenever I read these things in Scripture, whenever I read about the, 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 the revivals that have happened up and down your land, I'm trying to think of the name of the person. And whenever he preached, the people in the, in the congregation, it was actually outside, were seen holding onto the trees because they had a vision of themselves actually falling into hell. Can anybody give me the name? Jonathan Edwards. Thank you. You get a milkshake. Is that right? <laughs> he says he wants two. Is that, isn't that what you said? I think Jonathan, that's worth two, is it? I'm not sure. I, mean, I can see his face here. I don't think he's going to do it. But God will not show himself in a manifest way to an unholy Christian. Death must precede presence. Death must precede presence. Do you know what that means? It means in the Old Testament that an animal had to die in order for somebody to actually go into the manifest presence of God. Do you remember God was in the Holy of Holies? You remember one person once a year was allowed to go in there? The atonement bit had to be right. The sins had to be confessed properly. Otherwise, that person died. Death preceded presence in the Old Testament. Guess what? Nothing actually changes in the New Testament. Death must precede new, uh, presence in the New Testament as well. But guess who, is, guess who it is that has to die? It is you and I. It is our flesh that has to die. It is the old bits and the lumps and all of the, 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 the old personality of Phil Scott. That's the bit that has to die in order for me to get into the presence of Almighty God. And I hate the fact that sometimes we cheapen that to an experience. I really do. Because God wants us 24-7. And yes, absolutely, we should be carrying the anointing of God all of the time. If you read about the greats down through the centuries, you will know that actually whenever those greats went into the presence of people, people actually sat down beside them or got down on their knees because these people carried so much of the anointing of God in their lives. Smith Wigglesworth is a person that I think of whenever I think of that. And don't think that that's unscriptural, by the way, because if you read the book of Acts, you will know that Peter's shadow healed people. It was the presence of God that he carried. Do you and I want to carry such an anointing and a presence of Almighty God that whenever we walk into a room, somebody knows God has arrived? And I'm not talking about you and I being deity in any way there. Please don't misunderstand. I am not disrespecting God. 
But I'm telling you, is it possible that you and I can carry such an anointing of God in our lives that people recognize it before we even open our mouths? This world is yet to see one man completely sold out for God. Please, God, let that be me. I see people nodding their head. I hope that's an agreement. The second thing, the unselfishness of Christ. The first thing was the holiness of Christ. What about the unselfishness of Christ? Jesus was completely unselfish and gave himself freely. Is it possible that as Christians we can be self-centered and self-indulgent? Let me answer it for you. Yes, of course we can. We're human, we're flesh. I know some, I said this this morning, I know a lot of unsaved people who put me to shame. I really do. And sometimes I look at them and go, oh my goodness, I wish I could be like you in terms of your generosity, in terms of your unselfishness, in terms of how open and willing and welcoming you are. Sometimes I struggle with that. But that's what Christ was. Christ was completely unselfish. You know, when we pray or even praise God, is it possible that very often, and we talked about this this morning or last night, I can't remember, is it possible that we're focused on ourselves? Here's what Tozer says. He says, we live for self, talk loudly about glorifying God, and boast and say, this is to the glory of God, and yet we are self-centered. You'll know you're self-centered if anybody crosses you and your hackles go up. Don't smile about it. It's not funny. It's serious. Tozer said that 60 years ago. You'll know you're self-centered if anybody crosses you and your hackles go up. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands there. I've already admitted to you about the mammals and the bicycles and the streets and the roads of Northern Ireland. Sometimes my hackles go up. Does your hackles go up? Well, let's just be open and honest tonight. I don't mean start talking to me, but think about this as for what it is that I'm saying. Does your hackles go up for any reason? Because if it does, then we need to start looking at actually what it is. Is it possible that we can be carnal as Christians? I'll let you decide the answer to that. You know, how can a completely selfless Christ have true fellowship or commune with a selfish and an indulgent Christian. The third thing is about the love of Christ. How much time do you want to spend with Jesus? He gave himself freely and completely for us, didn't he? You know that love is spelt T-A-M-E? There's also uh, DC Talk wrote a song called Love is a Verb. And just in case in America you don't know what a verb is, it's a doing word. I'm not, a, I'm not, not having a go at this, you know, but it is our language. Just like, you know, keep reminding you of that. I'm sure you've heard of DC Talk. Love is a verb, great song. It's true though, love is a verb. Love is about T-A-M-E. But the question is, how much time do you want to spend with Jesus? You know, do you want me to challenge you here? And by the way, I'm challenging this way too. Question, do we reach for Facebook or the book first thing in the morning? Just a question, just a question. Which one do we start with? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with some stuff on fake book, as I like to call it. I don't have it. I actually had a really bad experience at Facebook. I joined Facebook about six months ago, confession. I joined Facebook to try and meet somebody because <laughs> I bumped into her a few times on the road, you know, that kind of thing. I wasn't on Facebook, joined Facebook, and within a week, 1,300 people were following me and they were ringing me from all over the world. I'm serious. I, obviously, I was doing something stupid. And after about one week, and incidentally, I found my bride without Facebook. Get rid of Facebook. Get rid of that. Stress the life out of me. I only had it for eight days. Now, I'm on Instagram. But the question still stands. Is it Facebook? Is it Instagram? Is it TikTok? Is it Snapchat? 
And I've run out of names now. The young people at the back could probably give me another 10. But what is it? What do we reach for first thing in the morning? Seriously? How, how much TV do we watch in the day? How much do we spend on our news feeds? I'm saying that probably most of these things are okay in the right context. But then we wonder why there's a moral dissimilarity with us and God. Whenever we can't even give God the first 20 minutes, the first half an hour, the first hour of our day. And none of us, none of us are perfect. Please don't think that we are. And I hope for those that know me, don't expect for me not to challenge you when I'm up here. But I can assure you that I'm challenging myself when I speak about these things as well. How much do you love Jesus? Is it measured? Is it calculated? Is it a little? Is it a lot? Depending on what you're doing, depending on what you're facing, depending on what you need. Does our prayer life go up if we've got a job promotion coming up? Does our job, does our prayer life go up? Do we love Jesus a little bit more if there's issues with our health, with our family? Do we make promises that we really don't want to keep? I'm just asking questions. You, you may not be like any of the things that I'm suggesting here tonight. You may not be, and that's great if you're not. But I really want to stun you into a place of actually thinking about this in reality tonight. Because if, there's, if you're feeling distant from God, it's a moral dissimilarity. And we need to correct some of these things and other things if we want to change that. Is it the case... Uh, is it, if it is the case that then the question must be, how does Jesus fellowship or commune with that? Let me give you some verses from the Song of Solomon. Everybody know where the Song of Solomon is? Incidentally, the Song of Solomon is only one of two books in the whole Bible that doesn't mention God. Did you know that? Song of Solomon didn't mention, doesn't mention God, neither does the book of Esther. But the interesting thing about the book of Song of Solomon is that it's an allegory between Christ and the church. Would you accept that? And it's written like it's between a lover and her beloved. And so whenever we read these words, look at them in terms of Christ and the church because that's what the Song of Solomon is. And so let me read a few verses to you. Song of Solomon chapter five, verses three to six says that I have had put off my garment. How could I put it on? Now this is the beloved the bride speaking to the bridegroom, I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. She couldn't be bothered at the start. This is a picture of Christ in the church. She couldn't be bothered at the start. Basically, she said, I've already got I'm already ready for bed. I've taken off my garment. I've put my night clothes on. Actually, I've washed my face. I'm ready for bed. Do you know what? I can't really be bothered. And yet she goes on to say that her beloved put, her, put his hand to the latch because he wanted to commune. He wanted to have that special time with her and have that relationship with her. But whenever she decided to actually go, do you know what? Maybe that's what I need to do. Whenever she got up and opened the door, the beloved had gone. And I'm not here to talk about the doctrine of grace tonight because we could talk about that all night. But what was happening here is that she couldn't be bothered at the start. She was just enjoying the gifts that she was being given. He wanted her fellowship, but she was too busy, self-centered and selfish, enjoying the blessings rather than the presence. Does it sound familiar to the modern day church that we potentially are involved with? Thankfully, she changed her mind, but the bridegroom had disappeared because he could not have fellowship with her. It reminds me of one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. For me, the, the verse in the New Testament that is probably, for my, in my view, misused, and that is Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. How often have you heard that verse in the context of evangelism? 
Now, I'm not saying that people haven't got saved as a result of that verse being preached, but I'm telling you right now that it's my belief that whenever the book of Revelation was written to the seven churches, this was the church of Laodicea, and the church of Laodicea, we know, was the lukewarm church, still a church, and what Jesus said to the church is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Have you thought of that verse before in the context? And we could talk about the Laodicean church. My goodness, is the Laodicean church alive and well today? Now, I absolutely believe that the other churches are alive and well today. Some people believe that differently than what I do. I'm not here to teach on the seven churches of Revelation tonight, but I will say that we all know about the church of Laodicea, don't we? And the interesting thing about the church of Laodicea is that Laodicea was actually a place. And Laodicea was near a town called Colossae. It was also near a town called Heropolis. And one of those towns had hot springs, and one of those towns had cold, cold water. And what happened was that Laodicea, even though it was a very wealthy town due to its commerce, it was wealthy due to materials that it was able to produce, and it was wealthy because of a, a, a hospital where it produced, uh, produced eye ointment. And you can actually read this all in the context of when you read about the church of Laodicea. But the interesting thing was that the water supply came to Laodicea via an aqueduct. And by the time it went through the desert and got to the city, guess what? It was lukewarm. And so whenever Jesus spoke this to the reality of the people in Laodicea, they knew that their water was rotten. And they knew that they couldn't drink it. They had to actually do something with it before they could drink it. And what Jesus was saying is, I can't drink the water. I wish it was actually hot or cold. I used to think that that meant, I wish you were actually a believer or not a believer. But Jesus wasn't actually saying that. He was actually saying, I wish you were good good use, and I wish you were actually serious about it, what it is that you are as a church, but actually you're lukewarm, and you're lukewarm in the sense that I can't actually stomach the water that you produce, and therefore I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And then he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's to the church. And if you and I are in here tonight, we need to listen to that verse because Jesus could very well be knocking on the heart of the door of your heart, and you're already a Christian. And this is about the carnality of Christianity. And this is about a moral dissimilarity rather than a moral similarity. Feel challenged? Good. Because I feel challenged. And I'm the one that's speaking. <laughs> so we talk about fellowship and God's presence. But we can only get to the place of manifest presence when we live lives worthy of communion. How can you feel the eminence of God if you're dissimilar in nature? Tozer says you have enough of his nature that you're justified and regenerated, in other words, saved, but you haven't got enough to perfect the fellowship. The perfection of the fellowship, that is what we need so desperately. So you and I in the church today, if you're saved, that's not what you need. Why? Because you're saved. What you need is to perfect the fellowship that you have with God. You need to have a moral similarity with God. And that's what we desperately need. That's what I desperately need. And if you're sitting in here tonight thinking that you don't need it, guess what? Because you've had that very thought, you need it. It's the idea whenever Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. The minute I think I'm meek, I'm not meek any longer. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so if we get to that place where we think this isn't for me, guess what? It's for you. Sorry. But that's true. My view. I think it calls for daily repentance. That's what I believe. The Lord's Prayer is there for a reason. I love the way the Lord's Prayer breaks down. We looked at this a little bit earlier, didn't we? Our Father, He's ours. He's our Father who art in heaven. Wow, hallowed be your name, the self-existent one, the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come. We need to praise God our Father. Your kingdom come. I don't have time to get into all of this. I'd love to. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, our needs, not our greeds. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us, Lord God. 
We need to get to what is important. Sure, you're saved, but it takes more than that to really feel the presence of a God, of Almighty God. You know what? I do want to pray tonight. I want to pray. I think we're going to maybe do this in two different ways tonight. Do you know what I think? I don't usually do this. I don't usually ask for people to indicate. I don't, I don't like making appeals like this because it's so easy to get caught up with those around us. I'm not being harsh because it's what we're supposed to do. This is a very personal thing between you and God right now. And just, just as Trevor plays in the background, we're not going to create any emotion here either, by the way. That's not what we're into either. And just as Trevor plays in the background, and don't stand if you've already got to this place in your life. Nobody's looking or judging or any of that. This is between you and God. And if you feel that there is some work to be done in your life, or the message has impacted you in any particular way tonight, whenever... I'm going to pray for you, and as I pray, I want each, not each of you, but those who feel that you need to, just to stand where you're sitting now, just to stand in that location, and I want to pray for everyone that is standing, and for those that aren't, and then I think, Trevor, maybe do a couple of songs, and then I think what we'll do after that is the board of Firefighters for Christ and their wives are going to be over at this corner here, where you, if you feel that you want personal prayer, for what it is that we've talked about tonight, or indeed, if you want to give your life to Christ for the very first time, or if you're backslidden, come over here and talk to these guys. But right now, um, if you feel that there's a carnality in your life, if you feel that there's a moral dissimilarity, or you feel that there's just something that you need to do in order just to step that little bit further forward, that daily repentance, the type of thing that I've talked about, and again, don't do this if God isn't prompting you to do it. Nobody's judging you. Nobody's sitting looking at you. But just stand now, and I can pray for you. And don't feel you have to. I'm serious about that. It's only if God has talked to you in your seat right now. You may very well uh, not need to do this. I'm going to pray for you anyway. But it's just that recognition that God can see the seriousness in this moment in time and the conviction that you have felt as I have spoke over the last whatever length of time I have spoke. And also, see if you're in your seat tonight and you're backslidden and you know that you were once saved and you're backslidden. And I'm sorry for pointing my fingers there. I don't like to do that either. If you feel that you're backslidden, whilst I'm praying, just stand up as well and just recommit, rededicate your life to Jesus Christ. And one final thing, if you have not yet given your life to Jesus Christ, you stand as well, because God will be able to work it all out, you know. God will know what you're standing for. And we, don't have to, we don't have to really even know that bit. But if, if you're coming to Christ for the very first time, tell somebody, let us know. I'm just going to give you one more chance to stand for any of those reasons. And I'm going to pray for everybody. And Trevor's going to do a song. And the board, after I pray, is just going to come over to the side here, and you can just slip on over there for prayer. For those that aren't doing that, I'm assuming people can just go down to, for ice cream and whatever else is, is going. Please keep me a bowl, will you? And uh, yeah, well, I just pray for us all. I just, I know I'm, I'm actually standing because I'm preaching, but I'm actually standing as well, just to let you know. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get Trevor to do a piece whilst the board make their way over to this side. And then just for whatever reason you feel that you need prayer for anything here tonight, I'll be over here as well, and we can pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we love you. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you forgive us for the things that we've messed up, for the mistakes that we make, for the sin, 
for all of the, whatever it is, Lord, that we've been doing. Lord, if it's been neglect of time or neglect of the things that you have given us to do, Lord, we recognize that we are nothing without you. And Lord, please just accept of our recommitment, our dedication to you, Lord God. And Lord, there's nothing more than we want to feel the manifest presence of Almighty God. And Lord, we know that revival starts at number one. And Lord, I know that it is my desire and many people's desires in this room tonight that revival starts right across this world. But Lord, please start that revival in us. And just like in Jonathan Edwards' meetings, Lord, give us a vision of hell, the thing that we're trying to save people from, the thing that we're reaching out to others for. Lord, show us the carnality and the dissimilarity that's relevant in our lives. Lord, is there things that we need convicted of, whether that be how much time we spend on television or, or social media or whatever it is, Lord God, that distracts us from you. Lord, just reveal that to us now as we stand. And Lord, just give us the strength to take a step back from that. Lord, help us, Lord, to be fully committed to you. Help us, Lord, to start our day with you. Help us, Lord, to turn to you, as Paul says, and to pray without ceasing. Lord, help us, Lord, to be continuously in that main set of prayer and communion with you, Lord God. And Lord, help us, Lord, not to settle for anything other than the manifest presence of God. Lord, please fill us to overflowing with the Holy Spirit so that we can carry such an anointing in our lives that the people that we come into contact with will recognize you and us before we even open our mouths. And Lord, I pray for everybody else in the room tonight. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you will bless everybody. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will bless people's families in here tonight. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will uh, bless people. You will extend people's territories. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will protect them from evil, that you will put your angels round about everyone that is within these, uh, I was going to say four walls, but this circle tonight. And Lord, talk to us. And Lord, if you're talking to us, Lord, please don't let us settle until we hear what it is that you're saying to us. In Jesus' name we pray.